Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 10 as we continue our series uh, in this uh, magisterial epistle written by the Apostle Paul. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning we will pick up in verse 5 and move through verse 13 as we continue in Paul's stream of thought here, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's begin, though, in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, as we come once again to this chapter of your word, we pray that by your spirit you would illumine our hearts and minds. Give us expectant hearts, teachable hearts, moldable hearts. And Lord, we pray that our love and appreciation for the gospel would only grow and would then compel us to live lives that are pleasing to you in ever-increasing measure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the summer of 1505, Martin Luther traveled to the town of Mansfield to visit his family. He was a student at the time. He was preparing uh, for a career in law. But on the journey... Some of you will know the story. He was caught in a violent thunderstorm. Lightning struck all around him, and the corresponding thunder shook the earth. His first impulse was quintessentially medieval. He cried out for help, not to God, but to his family's patron saint. He cried out, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Luther survived the storm, kept his vow, abandoned a future career in law to his father's chagrin, and joined an Augustinian monastery. And Luther, as many of you will know, did nothing half-heartedly. He was all in as a monk. He was all in. He said uh, later, it was said that if it was possible, Luther said it himself, that if it was possible for a monk to earn heaven by monkery, then I was that monk. He later described his life in the monastery, quote, I tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold alone was enough to kill me, and I inflicted upon myself such pains as I would never inflict again, even if I could. One might ask, why was Luther doing all of these things? Well, for at least four reasons. Number one, because his conscience was afflicted by the guilt and weightiness of his own sin. 
his conscience was afflicted by the guilt and weightiness of his own sin and because he believed in the holiness, judgment, and wrath of God. He believed these things. He was a medieval Roman Catholic and he believed in his own sin and he believed in the holiness and the judgment and the wrath of God. Contrary to modern evangelicalism, which seeks to push these things to the margins of the message of the church, these things were at the very center of his own piety as an Augustinian monk. Thirdly, he believed that the way of salvation was through the keeping of God's law. He believed that the way of salvation was through the keeping of God's law, through his own righteousness, through the law of God, through human merit. And then fourthly, he did these things because he was never convinced that his law-keeping or good works were good enough. He never believed, as many do today, that his works measured up to God's standard of righteousness. And dear ones, he was right. His law-keeping and good works never measured up. His own righteousness through the law would not do. What the German monk needed for peace with God and what we all need is a righteousness from outside of ourselves, a perfect righteousness that fulfills God's requirements and meets God's standard. In other words, in addition to payment for the debt of our sins, we need the righteousness of God. Adam and Eve possessed original righteousness in the garden, but that righteousness was lost when they fell into sin and were expelled from the garden. Luther did not need more sleepless nights on his knees or more time in the confessional or more pilgrimages to Rome. He needed the good news of the gospel. He needed Christ. He needed his all-sufficient blood and his perfect righteousness. And of course, it was later while studying the book of Romans, that the Holy Spirit revealed this to him. We're going to pick up on this a little more this evening. But Luther, in this study of Romans, learned that through faith in Christ, our sins are atoned for and a perfect righteousness is credited to our account. That is the righteousness of Christ. Like a thunderbolt from heaven, Luther realized that the medieval Roman Catholic system had it wrong. Salvation is not earned. It is a gift. Sinners do not, through obedience to the law, climb up to heaven. No, heaven comes down to sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. And he makes a way of salvation through his blood and Righteousness. It is the dogma of every other religion in the world that you work your way to heaven, that you climb a ladder to heaven. But Christianity is the only, the only faith which says, no, God has come down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not an overstatement to say that the Apostle Paul has been laboring over this point from differing angles for most of the epistle to the Romans. He is in anguish. He is in anguish over the spiritual condition of his own people, Israel, of his Jewish countrymen. He wants them to be saved. And so he labors, he labors to correct their low view of God's righteousness and inflated view of their own. 
their low view of God's righteousness and inflated view of their own. You understand here, so many are not like Luther, having a high view of the righteousness of God and feeling like his own uh, trying to obey that law, attempts to obey that law, is insufficient. So many today actually have a low view of God's righteousness and they think that their good works somehow are sufficient to get them into heaven. And that's what Israel was dealing with here. Remember back in chapter 10, look there. Uh, Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They had a low view of the righteousness of God and an inflated view of their own. In other words, since the Jews did not have a right conception of the righteous requirements of God's law, namely perfection, they established their own righteousness, tainted by sin, and thus didn't meet God's requirements and thus did not submit to God's law. But the gospel reveals that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. That Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, for those who believe, Christ is the telos, the end of the impossible demands of the law for salvation. This is good news. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Those who are not in Christ have, have only, and those who reject Christ have only one way to find life and salvation, and that is through the impossible demands of the law. But in Christ, he is the end of the law for righteousness because he is our righteousness, you see. What freedom, what joy, what deliverance comes through this gospel of grace, this truth moved Edward Mote in 1834 to write these familiar words, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In other words, what's this sweetest frame? This is like antiquated language, right? You don't walk around your house saying, I'm not going to trust in the sweetest frame. You don't say those kinds of things today. What he is saying is he's not trusting in his feelings. He's not trusting in experiences. He's trusting in the objective blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ for salvation. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul wants his first century readers in Rome to grasp the fact that hope in one's own righteousness is sinking sand. He wants them to know that there is only one saving righteousness. And if you're taking notes this morning, that's the first heading in my outline. One saving righteousness. Look with me again at verse 5. Look with me again at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, but uh, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, when we read live by them here, this is not sort of live according to them as a Christian language. This is live as in salvation language. Moses writes 
about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Here Paul is referring to Leviticus 18 and verse 5, where Moses writes, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. In other words, there is indeed a way to gain everlasting life through a righteousness based on the law. The problem is, this way has become impossible. It has become impossible for mankind because of sin. Because of our fallen nature, we are incapable of fulfilling the requirements of the law. The last people that could fulfill the requirements of the law were who? Adam and Eve. When? Prior to the fall. It was in their state of innocence when they still possessed original righteousness and sin had not entered into the scene that there was this possibility of gaining everlasting life through obedience. We read about this in Genesis 1 and 2. Since then, however, life through obedience is beyond the bounds of possibility. That's the point that Paul is making over and over. His point in verse 5 is the same point he makes in Galatians 3, that those who seek salvation through the law must abide by all of it without fault. We all loved curves in school, right? I especially loved them because I was usually at the bottom of them. You know, oh, I hope the teacher puts a curve on this test or I'm in big trouble. And then then the curve happens. Yes, I got a 70, you know. I would have had a 40. You love curves, right? The sort of unexpected grace and generosity of the professor. Well, they can do that. They're the professor. They can do that, okay? God is holy. God is just. God does not judge on curves, He judges righteously. He is perfect, holy, just in all of his ways. He could not be God if he were to suspend his holiness and his justice in any way. And so to gain everlasting life through obedience to the law, one must do all of it perfectly, personally, without fault. Every jot and tittle must be obeyed. There must be not only the obedience of the law in not transgressing it, but also in conforming to it. So every thought, every word, every action is in perfect conformity to the law of God and to the righteousness of God. The last time that happened was in the garden prior to the fall with Adam and Eve, and it hasn't happened since apart from one man the man Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's point in Galatians 3 is the same one that he makes in Romans 10, 5, and following. That salvation through the works of the law, salvation through a personal righteousness, is impossible. It's unattainable. It is unachievable. But Paul, in verse 6, directs us, it directs our attention to some very good news. Namely, that there is another righteousness a saving righteousness that is based not on works, but on faith. That is, faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look there, 
again at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does them, that does the commandments, shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, there's a righteousness based on faith. And to punctuate his point, Paul, in verses 6 through 8, personifies righteousness based on faith. Did you notice that? He personifies righteousness based on faith, making this righteousness based on faith speak to the readers. He speaks to the audience to underscore the antithesis between salvation by works and salvation through faith. Look what righteousness based on faith says in verse 6. Notice there. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, don't be discouraged if when we read that earlier or when you've read that in the past or when I read it just now, you're thinking, what in the world? Paul talking about here. This seems arcane. It seems confusing. The language doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, what Paul means here has a real connection to the Old Testament. We are told not to say these things in our hearts, and to understand what Paul's intention is here, we need to first consider the Old Testament verses that stand behind it. The backdrop is Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. Moses says this, quote, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So, what's the context here? Well, here we have the people of Israel. They are on the threshold of entering Canaan. Joshua and his military leadership is about to take hold. And Moses is about to say goodbye. But before he does, he preaches five sermons, which are essentially the book of Deuteronomy. And he preaches these sermons to prepare them for life in the promised land as the people of God. He exhorts them to obey God's word as they will encounter pagan nations, false gods, and ungodly ways. And Moses tells them that God's word is not hidden from them or far from them. Moses tells them that God's word is near It's not something they have to work for. They don't need to climb up to heaven to get it or cross the seas to obtain it. No, God's word has been revealed to them through Moses. It is near them. His word has been given to them. Consequently, it's in their mouths. It's in their hearts. And they must seek to honor and obey God with it. But Paul you'll notice in Romans 10, 6 through 8, puts a different spin on these verses from Deuteronomy 30. 
It's a gospel spin, so to speak. He writes, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. That is to bring Christ down, uh, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, what Paul is saying here through the personification of righteousness based on faith is that one shouldn't think in his heart of salvation as doing impossible superhuman feats such as bringing Christ down from heaven or bringing him up from the dead. Indeed, that's an insult to the fact that Christ came down to us in the incarnation and rose from the dead on the third day. No, salvation, Paul is saying, is easier than that for us. It's easier than that for us. How so? Because salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is received through faith and not gained by works. One must simply believe. One must simply have faith. That is faith in Christ. It's an amazing message. You know, so many don't believe it. So many that are in the church do not really believe this. They might even believe it intellectually, but, but emotionally and existentially, uh, we have such a hard time believing that salvation truly is a free gift. One writer explains it this way, quote, the impossibility of both tasks, namely bringing Christ down from heaven or bringing him up from the dead, matches the impossibility of keeping the law well enough to receive life by doing it. Paul's point is that through the incarnation and resurrection of Christ, God has already done everything necessary to provide righteousness and life for the believer, end quote. You don't have to do the impossible to be saved. That's the point. You don't have to do the impossible to be saved. You only need, by God's grace, to believe the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that whosoever believes in him. Wait a minute, that's it? I don't have to climb a mountain? I don't have to cross the seas? I don't have to do grand works of penance? No, you must believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What about repentance, Pastor John? Repentance comes with true belief. It is a fruit of true belief. You don't repent and believe. You believe by God's grace and you repent. Not just once, but for your entire life. You repent of sin and look to Christ for grace and forgiveness. But this is the point, isn't it? You don't have to do the impossible to be saved. Paul then writes again in reference to Deuteronomy 30, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And what is the word of faith that the apostles proclaim? Well, it's not what the word of faith movement says. Name it and claim it. Say the word and God will give it to you if you have faith. Healing, riches, health, 
whatever you ask for, it's the word of faith. Complete distortion of this phrase. Oh, no. In the words of John Murray, the word of faith is the word to which faith is directed. The word of faith is the word to which faith is directed, not the word which faith utters. It is the word preached and therefore the message which brings the gospel into our mouth and heart, end quote. Dear ones, this is what saving righteousness personified tells you this morning. You don't have to do impossible things such as obey the law perfectly or pull Christ down from heaven or raise him up from the dead in order to be saved. You don't have to do great works of penance or scale mountains or cross oceans to have a, or have a great religious experience to be reconciled to God. No, you must simply believe. Believe on him. Have faith in Christ and what he's done for you. Salvation is by grace through faith In Christ, you must only believe in what he's already done through his incarnation, his coming down from heaven, and his resurrection, his being raised from the dead and the abyss on the third day. Only one righteousness can save you. That's Paul's point. And isn't it a glorious one? Only one righteousness can save you, and that is a righteousness based on what? Faith, a righteousness based on faith. And that faith leads to only one way of salvation. Only one way of salvation. Look with me now at verses 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The way of salvation is not through the law. It's through belief and confession. First of all, belief. Belief. Belief in what? Belief in yourself? No. That's what the world's answer is to humanity's brokenness. You must believe in yourself. No. No, this belief that Paul is speaking of is belief sincerely from the heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And beloved, here we are reminded that Christianity is founded upon the defiance and defeat of death and hell by the Son of God. So many, so many want to have a kind of 1950s Christian religiosity, a place to go on Sundays, to have some friends, have some social connections, to be reminded of good morals and healthy living. But it's not a, an encounter with God, uh, an encounter with the power of God, the saving operative power of God that comes through the gospel. This power comes through the resurrection of Christ. We believe in a supernatural religion where God is at work. To reject the resurrection of Christ is to reject Christianity altogether. Indeed, if Christ is not raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. But he is raised. And the heart of one with true saving faith believes this 
and is justified. Justified by grace through faith in Christ. That is counted as righteous. Justified. No longer condemned in sin, but justified by grace through faith in what Christ has done. We were reminded during Sunday school of that question that is often asked during evangelistic conversations. What would you do if God said, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer, the only right answer to that question is that I, on my own, deserve not to go to heaven, but to be cast out of your presence forever. But you sent your son to live for me and to die for me and to rise for me. And he is my righteousness. He is my life. In him I have full pardon for my sins. I may gain entrance into heaven because I'm with Christ. And I had nothing to the grounds of my salvation. We believe this from the heart. But it's not only faith that constitutes the way of salvation. It's confession. Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, for with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We confess, first of all, that Jesus is Lord. And this is the true fruit of saving faith. Dear ones, one cannot take Christ as Savior and not as Lord. You see, He holds both offices. And you can't possess Him as one and not the other. Those with true faith joyfully confess Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord. Listen to what Robert Mount says, quote, Those who come to Christ by faith are acknowledging that they have placed themselves entirely and without reserve under His authority to carry out without hesitation whatever He may choose for them to do. Those who say that they intend to have a good time on earth and take a back seat in heaven do not realize that there are no back seats for those who approach salvation with this attitude, end quote. You see, Christ is not only Savior, but Lord for those who have true and saving faith. And remember, this is the fruit of faith. This is the fruit of saving faith. We confess that He is Lord. And in such a context as the early Christians in Rome, this would have had a lot of meaning for them, this confessing Jesus as Lord, because who was confessed as Lord in ancient Rome? The Caesars. And so to confess Christ not only as Lord, but as the Lord, the one Lord over the church, was not only to be in defiance against Caesar, but against Rome. And so this had a lot of weight under it to confess Christ as Lord, you were essentially saying, I'm willing to give my life. It was, it was assenting to, consenting to the true nature of discipleship. If you want to follow me, Christ said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Confession of Christ as Lord is also publicly identifying with the people of God, isn't it? This word confess here has, as one writer says, a kind of communal nuance to it. You see, confession isn't something that you just do on your own in a room. You do it among people. 
And we do it with the people of God. We publicly confess our faith every Lord's Day when we recite the creeds and confessions. We publicly confess our faith when we gather for Lord's Day worship. It's not in vain when we confess our faith. It's the way of salvation. We are a confessing people. And through our confessions and our singing and our praying and our preaching, we confess Christ as Lord over all, Lord over our lives. And this brings us to the final heading, one Lord over all. We have one, one way of righteousness, one way of salvation and one Lord over all. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet again, Paul presses home the point that salvation is not for the believing Jews only, but also for believing Gentiles. There's no distinction Quoting from Joel 2.32, he declares, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Let that word ring out. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those from all backgrounds, from all ethnicities, those who have struggled with self-hate and those who have struggled with self-righteousness those who have had sinful addictions and those who by human standards have lived a decent life, those who have put their hope in self and worldly status and possessions and those who have yearned for them, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those who have put their hope in self and worldly status and possessions will not find life or hope or salvation. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved and shall receive, as it says here in this text, Christ's unsearchable riches of grace, an inheritance of life everlasting. And here's the thing. Glory, hallelujah. Here is the thing. Verse 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is speaking of the final judgment. There will be no shame for those who are united to Christ at the final judgment. Only glory. No shame. Christ took our shame on the cross. On that day, there will be rejoicing, gratitude, tears of joy, worship ushered into heaven. No shame. For those, however, outside of him, there will only be shame. For those who only confess Christ as Lord from their lips and not from their heart, there will be shame. You remember in Matthew 7 where it says, Lord, Lord. Those, those people said, Lord, Lord. Why are you rejecting us? We did all these miracles in your name. We did all these things for you. And Jesus said, Go away from me. I never knew you. There was confession from the lips, but not from the heart. No belief in the heart. But those who are united to Christ, who know him by grace and through faith, who have surrendered their lives to him by grace and call him Lord, there will be no shame. And so let me urge you, 
Let me urge you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. I urge you with all of my heart to call upon his name. If you have never called upon his name to save you, if you've never turned from your sin of selfishness and pride and, and, and self-absorption and worldliness, and you've never, you've never done that in any serious way, it means you're not a Christian. And you need Christ. You need a righteousness based on what he has done for you, on faith in him. Because apart from him, all you have is the law. And the law does not judge on a curve. Believe on Christ and be saved. Do not believe in religion. Do not believe in church membership. Do not believe in your baptism. Do not believe in religious rites. Do not believe in family heritage. Do not believe in your your attempts to obey the law to save you. Only Christ can save you. His blood, His righteousness alone can save you. And so let not another minute go by Receive Christ. Believe on him. There is no special ceremony that needs to happen. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon his name and you shall be saved. And he will deliver you from the bondage of sin, Satan, and hell. And eternal destruction. This is what we hear in this text this morning. Martin Luther rejoiced when by God's grace he came to realize Salvation was indeed not the result of fulfilling the impossible demands of the law, but receiving the gracious gift of Christ's righteousness, a righteousness based on faith. And so how should we respond to this text? Believe in your heart by His grace that His righteousness alone can save you, a righteousness based on faith, not on works. Sincerely believe that God raised Him from the dead, and that in Him alone you will find life. Don't reject the gift because of pride, worldliness. Receive the gift by faith. Receive it. Secondly, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He is Lord of your life, of every area of your life. Where, dear one, are you holding back the Lordship of Christ from your life? Is it from your computer screen? Is it from relationships? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your work? Where is it? Is there something, are there things in your life where you are saying, Lord, you can be Lord over these things, but I'm going to keep these couple of things over here, and the proportion is so different. Surely you must be pleased with this, Lord. Lord. That is not... When we say Christ is Lord, we say you... You have your way with me, Lord. I am yours. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. And so where in your life, where in my life, are we not bowing the knee to his lordship? Thirdly, dear one, rejoice. If you are in Christ this morning, rejoice in your salvation. Give thanks for the spiritual riches that you possess in him. Did you see what it said there in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Spiritual riches. May he be our only boast.
May his grace compel us to a life of growing obedience to his word, seeking to please him in all things and at all costs. And finally, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this astonishing, glorious, majestic grace. We thank you that by your grace, you have united us to Christ And through the gift of faith, we cling to him and his righteousness alone for salvation. We turn from sin. We seek over a lifetime to put to death remaining indwelling sin and to live more and more into you. Our Father, we are indebted to you alone in your grace. We can never pay it back. We thank you, Lord, that we'll have all of eternity to give you praise and thanksgiving. Father, we do ask that even now, we would all believe in our hearts that Jesus rose from the dead and confess with our mouth that you are Lord, that we would be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to please take the insert in your bulletin as we sing together, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength.